Well, this morning, uh, it's my privilege to introduce to you our guest speaker, uh, Dr. A.J. Swoboda. Uh, A.J. is a professor at Bushnell University. Uh, he's a podcaster. If you're a, a fan of podcasts, as I am, uh, check out In Faith and Doubt. Uh, it's, really, it's really good. He's the author of a number of books, including the award-winning Subversive Sabbath, as well as his latest book, After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Uh, AJ is married to Quinn, and he is the proud father uh, of, of Elliot. And, and you have another one, too. What, what, what's a foster daughter? Yeah, and another foster daughter. Fantastic. Um, they live and work in Eugene, Oregon. And would you give a warm Northwestern welcome to uh, AJ Swoboda? Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Northwestern. He failed to mention that we also have 12 chickens. I thought that was important for you to know. I'm excited to be with you. This is actually my third chance to be with you. I was with you just a couple years ago uh, and a couple more years before that, and it's a joy uh, to have the chance to be with you uh, this morning. I want to talk about something that I think is going to matter to you. Um, I've titled my talk today and Wednesday, The Way of Thomas, Doubt, Deconstruction, and Discipleship. And what I want to talk about today is really the culmination of about 20 years of my life. Um, I have, for about 20 years, worked with uh, college-age people. Right now, I'm a college professor. Uh, for about 10 years, I was a church planter in urban Portland, Oregon. And for 10 years before that, I was a college pastor. And the truth is, I've spent a lot of my time uh, with people your age. And I have learned a good deal sitting in the front row. And the truth is, my gut tells me that if you're like any human being uh, who is trying to follow Jesus... You have questions, doubts, worries, unresolved issues in your faith that you haven't figured out. Things that you, maybe you keep up at night. You stay up at night, you can't sleep, you think about it. Uh, issues that uh, have not gone resolved. Uh, you've asked God time and time again, God, why, why won't you resolve this? I'm gonna bet you bring into this room some doubt, some questions. And this morning, uh, and on Wednesday, I want to talk about what we do with those things. Uh, I can tell you uh, I, one of the questions I'm asking right now. Uh, I'm losing sleep over it, actually. It's, it's been a real theological, biblical debate in my family. My 10-year-old my son and I, uh, we stay up late at night in our hot tub and argue this one out. We, um, we really are trying to find uh, what the Bible or, or, or sort of orthodox Christian theology might have to say about the issue of the existence of Bigfoot. It's been a big deal for us. Uh, a year ago, uh, we were out on a hike in Eureka, California, and I swear to you, we, we heard Bigfoot. I don't know what he said, but he said something to us. From the distance, it wasn't a dog, it wasn't a human. I have lost sleep wondering about Bigfoot. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, in the 1500s, uh, was asked by one of his students, uh, Martin Luther's that famous Protestant reformer who uh, started the Protestant Reformation, he was asked, hey, hey, Martin, what was God doing on the eighth day after he created for seven days? And Luther is reported to have answered that God was creating hell on day eight for people who ask really silly questions. <laughs> I spend a lot of time with college students, and some of our questions may seem silly, but my gut tells me that some of our questions are actually very real, very challenging. Issues about struggles we've had our entire life. Uh, issues of not having full answers about the Bible. 
uh, questions about uh, what God is doing in the world. Why is, everybody else, why is everybody else getting married but not me? Why can't other people have kids but we can't? Questions of just wondering, why? My friend, uh, Jerry Root, who teaches at Wheaton uh, University, uh, has this really funny line where he says, you know, the moment that we enter God's glory uh, and we enter the presence of God, uh, that first moment we see God face to face, that the minute we enter heaven, the very first word out of our mouth is we will look around, we will see God, we will see heaven, and the first words we'll say is we'll say, Oh, it all makes sense. But before then, right, we don't see clearly. In fact, um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says, we, we see through glass dimly. We, we don't see perfectly. We don't see clearly now. There will be a day when we'll see God face to face. But until then, it's just unclear. What, what, what in the world, God, are you doing? Unresolved questions, doubts, struggles. Yes, in that moment, we'll see and we'll understand. But until then, but until then, there's a lot of questions. Uh, one of my favorite stories from a guy named Carl Barth, who was one of my favorite theologians uh, back in the early 1900s. Uh, he wrote a, a volume of systematic theology called Church Dogmatics. It's over 12 million words. It is said that even Carl Barth didn't read the whole thing. And that when he died, he was asked about his theology, this book he'd written, and he said this. You know, when we enter heaven, we shall, we shall know all that is necessary. We shall not have to write on paper or read anymore. Indeed, I shall be able to dump even my church dogmatics over the growth of which the angels have long been amazed on some heavenly floor as a pile of waste paper. His point being that when we enter heaven, we will no longer have theology we will have an experience of God. That our thoughts will no longer be the thing that we have. We will have a personal experience with God. But the truth is, it takes a long time to get to know God, doesn't it? It takes a long time to get to know God. By the way, I don't see the red numbers that are supposed to tell me how long I have. Where's those numbers at? The red threatening numbers. Point them out to me. Ha I was right. They up there somewhere? I don't see them. I literally see no numbers. 10.51, that's what I see. What time do I need to be done? What, 10 after? Praise the Lord. One of my favorite authors, a woman named Madeline Lengel. Uh, she wrote a book called The Irrational Season. And she says, you know, actually in a marriage, it takes a lifetime to get to know somebody. And that is that when you, when, when, when you love somebody for a lifetime, like, like, like you, you, you marry them and, and then there's gonna be this moment two weeks after you get married where you're gonna look at them as they're driving down the road and you're gonna look at them and you go, who did I marry? It takes a lifetime to get to know somebody. And in, in a moment, we're gonna read a story from the Gospel of John chapter 20. Uh, but before we do that, I wonder if this morning uh, I could suggest to you that we're all on what I call the theological journey. And what I mean by that is this, that every single one of us is in the process of learning about God, that none of us have fully arrived. Not one of us have, has a perfect theology and understanding of God. We're, we're all learning about God. The, the process of following Jesus takes an entire lifetime, not only to learn 
about God, but it takes a lifetime to get to know people too. That relationships take time and energy. And in the same way, the theological journey, learning about God takes a long time. And in our moment in history, I know a lot of us are facing questions about, you know, how do we, how do we have good theology? How do, we, how do we understand God in a, in a changing culture? A number of years ago, I was pastoring in Portland, in the, church, in the heart of urban Portland, and I got an email from a guy named Phil. I've changed his name for the sake of posterity, but I get, I get this email from a young man who had just moved to Portland from uh, middle America. He'd been raised in a conservative, uh, kind of Christian evangelical home. Great kid. And he had just moved to Portland uh, to uh, be, up, uh, he'd just gotten a job at a tech firm. And he was jazzed to be a part of the church. We had just started the church a few years earlier. And so uh, he emailed, he says, hey, I want to go, I want to go out to coffee. And so I said, I'd love to do coffee. So we're sitting in my office and he tells me a story. He'd been raised in an awesome Christian house in, uh, uh, in Kansas, kind of middle America. And he'd moved to Portland and he was just jazzed to be in Portland. Not just for the donuts either. He was jazzed to be on mission. He wanted to see Portland know Jesus. He wanted to be a part of the church. He wanted to be on the sound team. He'd been on the sound team in his home church back home. And so we're sitting there, we're dreaming, hey, how can you be part of the church? And we got all these ideas. I'm super jazzed. I'm a church planner. We needed volunteers, so I was super happy. And he's gonna plug in. And we say goodbye, and Phil's gonna be a part of the community. And I noticed that Phil came for a couple weeks. But then Phil, out of nowhere, disappeared. And because, you know, pastors are busy people, I forgot. I just sort of forgot about Phil. Not in a mean way, just, just pe- people sometimes just get, get, get disconnected. And about a year later, I get an email from Phil. He wants to meet again for coffee. He says, hey, hey, it's been a year since we've met. Can we meet one more time? I said, I'd love to get together. So we're sitting in my office, drinking coffee. And he tells me what's happened over a year. He tells me that he gets this job at the tech firm and uh, his new roommate uh, that, that he eventually moved in with was this really great guy that he worked with and he found out when he moved in that he was, a, he was an atheist. He had no idea that he was an atheist and, um, and, and they, w- they, they became really good friends. And they would sit up at night and just talk about the Bible and faith. And he, and he said, Phil says, but the problem was this atheist guy that I was living with, he was like the nicest guy I knew. You know, when you're raised to think that atheists are like horrible people and they like, like kill kittens and stuff, like, you know, and, and then all of a sudden you meet one and they're like, they're like normal human beings and like nice and kind. He didn't know what to do with it. Not to say nothing of the fact that this guy had brilliance. He knew all these apparently challenging things about the Bible and, and like things that, quote, were wrong with it and arguments against why God probably didn't exist. And, and Phil just had no answers for these things. And so they would stay up late at night just talking. And Phil talks about how he was thrown into this this whole new world of just asking questions that he'd never asked as a kid. And he says his life became one big podcast binge at two times the speed. Everything became all these new questions. And he just starts bringing up these questions. He says, you know, like, I stopped coming to church because when I came to church, I felt lonely because I missed my family back home. And every time I came to church, I felt like I was all alone. I didn't have any friends here. And then he starts just saying, I, what about, okay, the Bible. Like, how did the, the Bible get put together? How did they, how did they make the Bible? Like, uh, I didn't know that it was like this. I thought God just sort of wrote the NIV, just plopped it down on our lap in leather. Where did it come from? 
Questions about God's existence. Questions about sexuality and gender. He goes, I have no answers for these things. What am I supposed to do? And at that moment in our conversation, Phil, the tone changed. And he looks at me. And he says, AJ, I want to follow Jesus. But I've got all these questions. And then he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, I have all these questions. Am I still allowed to be a Christian? And I looked at him at that moment and I realized I wasn't talking to a person, I was talking to a generation. A generation of people that have all these questions about the Bible, faith, gender, sexuality, politics, God, the existence of God, suffering. We've got all these questions and we wonder like, is it okay for me to bring these questions to God? And what I wanna suggest to you today and Wednesday is this. If Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save you from your sin and the power of hell, then he is powerful enough to save you in the midst of your doubts and your questions. And the reason I can say that is the Bible. There's a story in the Bible. I want to read to you the story of a guy named Thomas. In John chapter 20, we're introduced to this uh, disciple. Uh, um, we don't know a lot about Thomas. There's some details in the New Testament, uh, but not a lot. He's one of the disciples that not a whole lot is written about. Um, and we know that Thomas, for three years, had followed Jesus. He was a disciple of the way of Jesus. Along with the other 11, he had for three years between the ages for, of Jesus' life, between 30 and 33, before Jesus dies on a cross and resurrects and goes to ascend to heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Thomas follows Jesus for three years. And I want you to think about this. Thomas had seen all the miracles. He had seen Jesus raise the dead. He had seen Jesus feed 5,000. He had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the grave. He had seen Jesus give teachings that changed people's lives. He had seen all this incredible stuff for three years. And just imagine being in the room like Thomas and getting to experience that stuff. And on Good Friday, Jesus dies. And on Sunday, Jesus resurrects. And this is what happens. In John chapter 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, and by the way, you don't ever call him Doubting Thomas because the Bible doesn't call him that. So don't give him a nickname, don't misname him. His name is Thomas. Does he doubt? Yeah, but don't call him Doubting Thomas. Now Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Next slide. A week later, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And I got to tell you, by the way, Jesus is resurrected at this state. Two really cool things about the resurrected body. Number one, the number one recorded activity of Jesus in his resurrection body, you know what it is? He eats food. A ton. He is resurrected and he's always eating. In fact, it's hilarious how many times in the Bible people are raised from the dead or healed and then the very first thing is they eat a meal. Something about resurrection makes you hungry. Can I get an amen? There will be food in the resurrection state. 
the number one described image of heaven is as a feast. Can I get an amen? Come on. Okay. So Jesus eats good food. Hunger is not a game. Hunger is heaven. Number two. Look at this. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. You got to love that Jesus in his resurrection body can just like walk through doors and walk through walls. And and there's a reason why, right? The resurrection body, it's a different kind of body. It's a spiritual body, but it's also a physical body. It's a sort of uh, unique body. It's a resurrection body. And Jesus says, peace be with you. Then, look at this. Then he says to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, put it into my side. We're gonna talk about this on Wednesday. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so Thomas is having a very difficult time believing that Jesus has resurrected from the grave. I want you to see three really simple things about this here. The first thing I want you to see is this. Actually, do what you want with the slides. First thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see, first of all, that Thomas had followed Jesus for three years and seen miracle after miracle. He'd seen the demons cast out. He had seen the dead raised. He'd seen that for three years. And yet, he still has a moment of doubt. Now, I I need you to see that. I'm 41 years old. I've got some years in my back pocket. I need you to see that. Here's why I need you to see that. It is possible to love God with all of your heart, leave everything behind, have experienced the miraculous, having seen things that are mind-blowing, having heard God's voice, you can experience those things and still walk through struggles in faith. I need you to see that. Because for some of you, you have been taught that if you struggle at all in your faith, it is a sign that you probably don't love God anymore. And I wanna declare to you today that people that love God sometimes walk through these kinds of experiences. Are you with me? Okay. The second thing I want you to see is I want you to see why Thomas doubts. And, And it's really interesting because the reason he doubts is that he wasn't in the room when Jesus showed up in the resurrection body. There's two moments in this story. Jesus shows up one time. He shows himself to the 10 disciples. Judas was no longer there. He shows himself to the 10 disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And so Thomas, who wasn't in the room, didn't see Jesus. He's like, I don't, I can't believe. And then he says, I will only believe unless, unless I see the scars uh, of Jesus. So the first time Thomas doesn't see him. And Jesus is going to come back and Thomas will see him there. But what's really funny is in the week between Jesus coming the first time and the second time, Thomas keeps showing back up. He's like, like, I'm I'm not, if he comes back again, I'm not gonna miss him. I'm going to every small group meeting. I'm going to every Wednesday night gathering. I'm going to every single leadership meeting. I am, if Jesus comes back again, I am not missing out again. But he missed out. He missed out, and I'm entirely convinced that his struggle with doubt is tied to the fact that he missed out, or he's perceived to have missed out. 
it, this, uh, this may be my experience, and I, I definitely don't think I'm pro- projecting this onto the Bible, but in my experience, moments of doubt and struggle for me almost always come at moments when I fear that I'm missing out, when I have FOMO. Why is everybody else getting married, but I'm not? Why can't everybody else have kids, but I can't? Why is everybody else getting the internship, and I'm not? Why is everybody else getting the job, and I'm not? Why does everybody else seem to be able to work out their sin issues, but I can't? Why in the world does everybody else seem to be happy on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, and my life is a total, total cloud of sadness? Fear of missing out. And you know what? You know what? Here's the deal. You know who's really good at getting at that nerve in our hearts? Is Satan. In fact, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, you go back to the story of Jesus in the, in the book of, in the desert where Jesus is tempted in the, garden, in, the, in the desert story. You have the Garden of Eden and you have the moment where Jesus is tempted in the, in the, in the desert. These two stories have one thing in common. Remember this. When the serpent comes to the woman in the Garden of Eden and he says to her, he says, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Do you remember that? What does, the serp- what does Satan say to Jesus in the desert? He says, Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you the nations. When you look at both of these stories, you all of a sudden learn something about Satan. Because when the serpent, Satan, says to Jesus, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you the nations, what did Jesus already have? The nations. And when the serpent says to the woman, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Friends, who was already like God? Humanity who was made in the image of God. Friends, the serpent's number one goal is to offer you a gift of something you already have in God. This trick that you're missing out You don't have the full story. You don't get it all. You're missing out. The serpent's number one goal is to convince you you are missing out. I flew all the way from Eugene to tell you, if you're in Jesus, you ain't missing now. You ain't missing now. There's no missing out in Christ. But he missed out and he thought, My goodness, I missed out. I don't know if I can believe. And then the third thing he does is he says, unless I touch the nail marks in his hands and his feet, then I will not believe. We're going to talk about this on Wednesday. I got to just mention this. It's absolutely insane and beautiful to me that Jesus, when he resurrected, he could have come back with a body without marks, but he comes back with scars. It's astounding. In fact, when Jesus resurrects and he ascends to heaven, guess what's still on his body? His marks. He is at the right hand of God the Father right now. Guess what are still on his hands? The marks. Guess what? When Jesus wipes the tears off your face, at that moment you enter heaven, what will you see right next to your eyes as he wipes your tears? The marks. And Thomas says, I, listen, Jesus, I'll believe if I get to touch those. And I want to close with this. I want to close with this in my last three minutes. Don't pack up. Calm down. <laughs> Is that often 
When we are struggling with doubt, what we do is we put parameters around what we're willing to believe and what we're not. We put parameters around how we will follow Jesus. You know, in in marriage, right, when you marry somebody, you're saying to that person, I will love you with all of myself, exactly, I will love you, I'm throwing my full self to you and I love you as you are. That's marriage. Marriage is when you love someone for who they are. But we don't do that often with Jesus. Sometimes we come to Jesus and we're like, Jesus, Jesus, I'll love you, I'll love you, as long as I get the ring by spring. I'll love you, Jesus, as long as I can get over my struggle with sin. God, I'll love you, Jesus, as long as I have the white picket fence and the spouse and 12 chickens. I'll love you, Jesus, if all these things happen. And I gotta tell you, there's a little bit of Thomas in there. A little bit of Thomas in there, because what you're saying is, is you're saying, God, I'll love you if I get the things I want. And I gotta tell you, that ain't a marriage. That's a prenuptial agreement. And you know what? That's what Thomas has given Jesus. He's saying, I'll believe if, but here's the deal, friends. We don't love the God we want. We love the God who is. And we don't love God around our parameters. We love God for who God is. And Thomas is going to learn this lesson. On Wednesday, we're going to talk about Thomas coming back to Jesus and Jesus coming back to Thomas. But what I want to ask you to do is this. Don't give God a prenup and say, I'll love you only as long as da, 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 da. I'm teaching a class right now on Bible sexuality and gender. It's the coolest, craziest class I've ever taught. There have been more arguments. People are more mad at me this week than ever. And I don't care, I'm fine with that. But I gotta tell you, when I have a student who says something to me like this, I could never believe in a God who created hell, or I could never believe in a God that thinks that way about sexuality, or I could never believe in a God, da 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 My, my response is, I wanna say like, at what point did you think your opinion like mattered? I'm not, I'm not being callous. I gotta stop, they're telling me that the red lights started. I'm, <laughs> I'm, ta- I'm not being callous. What I'm saying is, friends, to love God is to love God for who God is, not the God we want. There's this weird thing that we do where God made us in his image and we commit the sin of returning the favor. On Wednesday, I'm gonna invite you to bring to God your biggest questions, because what we're gonna find out is God can handle them. 